Every creator finds their own unique way to be creative. We're here to celebrate and learn from some of the best. Welcome to Michael's Craftivity Podcast. Hey folks, welcome back. It's Anna White here. And today I'm thrilled to have Malik Ducard, the first ever chief content officer of Pinterest on our podcast. Malik currently leads Pinterest content and creator teams, where he develops their content strategy and influences the products that Pinterest builds to help support creators. A lover of art and storytelling from the time he was a young child growing up in the Bronx, Malik's passion led him to work at major movie studios, including Paramount Pictures, and at technology companies like YouTube, where I had the pleasure of working with him. Malik is also an artist and author of award-winning children's books, a husband, and a father to three young men. I'm thrilled to talk to him more about creativity and how he harnesses it throughout every element of his life and work. Please join me in welcoming Malik. Hey, Malik, how are you? Hey, Anna, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's really good to see you again. Yeah, great to see you. So happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you for making the time. I think you noticed my background. I'm actually in the Michael's headquarters in Dallas for a couple of days. Um, And each of of our conference rooms, we have different pieces of art made by different creators who are also on our team, which is really cool. And something I want to talk to you about, creators generally, since that's such a big part of your role. But I wanted to begin things by just having you introduce yourself, just say who you are and what you currently do. Sure. Again, super happy to be here. My name is Malik Ducard, and I'm the chief content officer at Pinterest. And uh, I've been at Pinterest now for about a year. And in a thumbnail, what I do is I get to, to work with creators, publishers, content partners, and providers. And I get to work with a great team to help that group really find success on Pinterest and to grow on Pinterest and reach pinners through Pinterest. So happy to dive into all of that, but that's a thumbnail. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I do want to dive into that. And I know you because we worked together at YouTube that's right. about 10 years ago now. Um, <laughs> you, you stayed there longer after I left, but and a lot of our work touched creators there as well, YouTube stars, yeah. YouTube creators. So let's start way back before we get into the creator talk, which I do want to spend uh, quite a bit of time discussing. But I'd love to hear just more about you personally. Can you tell me where you're from and how creativity was part of your life as a child, if it was? Yeah, so I am from New York City. I grew up in the Bronx, New York, the boogie down Bronx. And creativity has always been just something that's been woven throughout my life. You know, I come from a family of storytellers. So growing up when I was a kid, my mom raised my sister and I, and she was like a prolific storyteller. Like she would tell us stories about her upbringing. She would tell us I guess, you know, I would call it almost like folkloric type stories. My family is from the Caribbean and my mom grew up in the Virgin Islands. And there were lots of stories, stories to highlight opportunities, stories to scare kids, to not do like bad things, like all kinds of stories. I just remember this rich texture of imagination and that really had an imprint on me. Like I've always loved to tell stories, to write stories. In fact, I remember way, way back in the day, probably second grade or third grade, in grade school, I would come to class or to school with these flip books that I would animate, like small, probably two inch by two inch flip books. And I would, at recess, flip through the pages and my friends would be gathered around me and I would voice over the stories. It was almost like a silent movie with me doing the voiceover. And I just remember doing that like day after day after day and asking my mom to buy me new flip books so I can animate more. So from a really early stage, I I loved shaping stories and sharing them with others. And so your mom encouraged that, it sounds like. Yeah, my mom absolutely encouraged that. Encouraged and lived it and embodied it. 
and supported me in that. Was she also an artist in some way? Art was definitely in the home. Art was outside the home as well. Like she would take us into Manhattan to go to the museums and she would take us to I remember <laughs> like at a really early age, like she took my younger sister and I to Kabuki Theater. When we we must have been some of the youngest kids like at that experience. And and I remember also like not appreciating it <laughs> as a nine-year-old right. and making jokes like at a place where it wasn't like a place for kids to tell jokes. But my mom was always sort of pushing that perimeter of exposure and really, really allowing us to immerse ourselves in all kinds of art, whether it was art in museums or art on the walls, graffiti, and she had a full embrace. My mom, she's retired now. She was a public school teacher back in the day and taught high school, and she really connected with her students in a lot of ways, but through art was one of the ways. So like she really embraced hip hop, right? And she was able to connect with her students. Like back in the day, when the Wu-Tang Clan, for example, was relatively new, she could name all nine members of the Wu-Tang Clan. And that type of like sort of hip presence and adult and sort of role model, I think, had an impact not only on me, like I can walk down the street with my mom and run into students, her former students who now have grown kids of their own, and they'll say, oh my goodness, Mrs. Ducard, like this and that, and here's how you impacted me. So the power of story and connecting with people was really sort of, hopefully, I think, built into me at an early age. That's so interesting. Well, wow, lots of threads to pick up there. So what subject did your mom teach? What was her official subject? She taught a few things. One of the main things was she taught at a vocational high school. So she actually taught nursing assistants and nursing and healthcare and, and medical sort of area. I'm butchering like exactly what she taught, but that was like her general field of what she focused on back in the day. But it sounds like she really understood the importance of what was in pop culture at the time and using that to relate to kids and to her students. I mean, I'm sure that gave her a lot of credibility to know all the Wu-Tang Clan members' names. <laughs> I mean, That's right. And my mom still stays on the pulse of culture and society. Like, I'll often get a text like, hey, Malik, you need to check this out. And it's like something I should know. And, and it's and like cool pinners that she wants you to, she's <laughs> right. like, this should be, these people should be in your creators program. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. I don't want this to become like the mom podcast, but like she's had such a profound impact on me. The other thing that she helped to fan the flames of was technology. And back in the 80s, I, I remember begging my mom for a Commodore 64. Like, I, I just wanted to code and work on computers. I didn't fully understand what it was. And she saved up what she could to buy me this Commodore 64 that really opened up. You know, speaking of opening up doors, it opened mm -hmm. up lots of doors. I spent lots of days and hours writing basic programming, making games, making art, actually, making animation. Like, if I had that computer today and could play back some of the old things that I made, it would probably look like South Park because it was just basic, like, you know, circles and shapes and people talking, and I would voice it over, like, with the flip books. And then she bought me a modem that allowed me to connect to an early version of the internet where I could share some of those animations and see other people's games and have that connection. And though I was far from, you know, kid growing up in the Bronx, had no idea what Hollywood or Silicon Valley was, because of that access that she provided me with, and also programs that I was fortunate to be involved in, it really planted the seeds that led exactly to what I'm doing. She sounds like an amazing woman. I do think we should have a podcast probably dedicated <laughs> to your mom, but Michael's is not going to do that one, but you all should. <laughs> so then did that kind of interest, and it sounds like the computer, maybe you were given that around high school, like kind of how did your interest in art develop through high school and then led you to Columbia, ultimately to college? How was art and creativity present then in your life? Yeah. What was interesting is that art 
and technology, like it, it always sort of coexisted for me. They were always, you know, really proximate. So whether it was the Commodore 64, and that was actually like grade school and telling stories around that to then I remember the new technology, what high school was for me and in, in leading into college was getting a hold of a VHS camera as part of like a high school club. And I remember I would just dream about, oh, one day if I could get access to a video camera, I would be able to tell stories and make short films and movies. And in high school, I was able to do that and spent a lot of time basically in the video club, which was basically like me and a friend. <laughs> we made like hours and hours of content with the new technology, which was the big giant VHS and painstakingly editing scene by scene, with what's now done in your back pocket, then it was lots of different pieces of equipment all linked together. And I remember my senior year in high school, my friend and I made a movie, like a feature length movie. In lieu of a sport, our last semester, we decided let's make a movie starring all our friends and us. And it was actually had a story, a beginning, middle, and end. And I remember like we premiered it on campus and the head, like the teacher head of the club watched it in the dark with everyone else. And we just so cared about what he thought about it because he was like the expert and it was the best like compliment diss I've ever had. He said, well, it definitely was a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I had the opportunity to marry those two interests of creativity and technology. And then later I went to Columbia where my focus was on um, film and African-American studies. So, you know, very, very steeped in liberal arts and the arts and, and all of that together, poli-sci, it had like a little bit of everything. And just as a student on campus, I was very active. And this was another thing I picked up from my mom. So my mom came of age in Harlem in the 1960s, a time of lots of activism, lots of change, lots of demands for change. And that was you know, sort of imprinted in me as well. And I was a student artist, I guess, and a student activist where there were policies that some students, including myself, thought needed some advancement and change and was part of using the tools of technology, actually, through documentary filmmaking to affect some change as well. I spent a lot of time with Columbia TV. I did actually two things in the art world, I guess, at Columbia. I was the head of Columbia TV, and we actually didn't have a TV channel. <laughs> But yeah, we called ourselves Columbia TV. But I had a public access TV show. And I don't even know if public access exists in the world today, but it was basically like community broadcasting and anyone can sign up for a show. And a friend and I signed up for a show called The Whole Nine. And this was a weekly show. We had a great slot of it. I think it was like 9.30, just aired in Manhattan, 9.30 every week. And what the show was, it was a combination of hot, new hip hop and R&B music videos. We would like literally write letters to the record labels like, hey, we have a show, send us your music videos. And they didn't know any better and they sent them. And then short films from filmmakers of color around the country. So we would write letters to film schools and ask them to post flyers, and we would get videotapes of these like short films, and we weaved it into a 30-minute show that came on weekly, and it was pretty cool. And when I think about, again, what I do now as chief content officer at Pinterest, where my role is to enable and encourage creators and publishers to grow and to live out their expectations and dreams and help to really be a support and an enabler. That's what we were doing with creators and music artists back in the day. So there's a lot of connective tissue that leads to where I'm at now. Although it didn't always look like that back then because, you know, you just kind of follow the scent 
and um, not knowing where it actually leads. Well, I love that. Yeah, you really were helping broadcast storytelling from the very early days of the flipbook and then helping broadcast other people's stories and maybe people whose stories weren't necessarily going to be heard um, or weren't showing up on TV and other 30-minute shows that were airing. And then the platform now that you work on, and I guess YouTube and Pinterest, just much larger, right, than your community yeah. TV show at Columbia. <laughs> but yeah, but in a similar yeah. vein, you are very, uh, it sounds like both ahead of the curve in some ways and also very authentic, it seems like, to who you are and what you believe in. I feel like that's just, I mean, that's something I remember just working with you for the time we worked together at YouTube. You just seemed always so sincere about like the goal and the effort and always really respected that. So it's very exciting to see it continue at at Pinterest. I think I told you, but my parents in the late sixties also started this media Institute in Kentucky, in Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. We talked about that before and it was just fascinating and so progressive. Yeah. I think it really was. I mean, I think it was at the same time that your mom was probably feeling unhappy with how certain things were. And I think my parents were, you know, they said it was like 68, 69. There was just so much unrest and change in America. They were a little bit older, like they both were in graduate school. My mom was at social work school at Columbia. My dad was just finishing architecture school at Yale, which is the school of art and architecture. So he did a lot of filmmaking as well. I think he actually made a film. But this program was through the war on poverty. It was called the Community Film Workshop of Appalachia. And there were, I think, 10 similar programs. They were all focused on youth media. It was like a media training program for youth in underprivileged areas around the country. So this was actually the one area focused in a poor rural white community in like a coal area in Eastern Kentucky. But there was a program in the Bronx. There was one in South side of Chicago, Compton, Watts area in LA on a reservation in Arizona. So there were 10 and this one, and I believe the one in Chicago still exists in a similar form. The Apple shop, as it's now called, has a lot of other things as an FM all volunteer radio station, a theater company, a recording studio called June Apple, but film and video are really the core. And they're, the goal when my dad started, it was very similar to like your high school club. It was, let's give kids the Port-A-Pack, which was the first Sony camera, which <laughs> I think Sony, my dad says they, they gave, you know, certain schools got one of these big ones. And so he'd seen one at Yale and he got to play with it and make some video. But very much the early videos sound like what you made in high school. It's just these like long rambling and you're having so much fun making them. Your friends are having so much fun in it. To watch it maybe is like not the best experience, but like really fun to make. Yeah. So I love that idea of giving people tools to tell their story in a way that is authentic to them. And there's stereotypes around so many communities, but there's very vivid stereotype of like the Appalachian hillbilly. And the whole premise was like, that's not the whole story. These people have a rich culture of storytelling and music and perseverance through a lot. So that was and still is the premise. What an amazing upbringing and parents and so progressive. I think that that's just wonderful. And it sounds like it lives on not only in you, but like organizationally as well, which is great. Yeah, it does. And it is, I'm very interested in like that exposure to art, like the same way your mom Mm -hmm. showed you. It sounds like art and technology, which are right where you sit today, which is so cool. One thing that's interesting with your story though, is then there's this period at business school, which is seems like maybe a little <laughs> further afield from like editing and the editing studio, but yeah. maybe not. Tell me about how that changed. And then the move from New York to LA, which I assume yeah. was kind of a big one after you spent all your life in New York. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. The one-way ticket that we're probably both familiar with is kind of a scary thing. But after school or undergrad, I worked in advertising for a few years, which was for me like the story of brands and the story of products. And I loved my time in advertising. But one thing that was really interesting was I had a real big focus on like new business and bringing in new clients to the agency. So I would have to get really smart about the footwear industry or all these like different industries. And I started to like fall in love with the business dynamics and challenges that each one of these industries that we would like swoop in on. Um, Yeah, I was fascinated by it and fascinated by the story of 
challenge in business because it's also a human challenge and has an outsized impact on people. And that was one of a few prompts or pushes that led me to business school. You know, another one was I did some stints as a writer as well. I wrote for a now defunct hip hop magazine. I was in a rotation program at now defunct New York Newsday back in the day. So I was a beat writer for a few months and I would do everything from a major parade going on in the city over the summer to sadly like there's a serial killer on the loose and like go talk to people about it and and it was such a range and was fascinating i learned that i love reporting and journalism and like this is so important and great i also learned that like it's not something i could do <laughs> or do well like i i love you know doing it but there was this interesting moment where the newspaper was bought by i forget who i think it was time mirror this is so many years ago but there was a decision that a business leader made to unwind the new york edition and i saw the impact that that decision had on human beings and reporting and reporters and readers and i was so like new and junior it didn't make a huge difference in my life but i imagine like okay if this was 20 years from now or if this was a different scenario what went through the mind of that leader who made the decision to unwind the paper and what was the decision making process and all of that and really not only technology and content let's call it because the technology industry was impacting newspapers this was like early internet coming in but then also business how does that connect with technology and content and all of that and what decision would i have made and i'm not sure it would have been the same and i definitely didn't have all the pieces of information but that was a prompt that led me to business school or one of them because i really wanted to understand how there can be lots of conflicting information and ultimately how do you make the right decision in really really challenging times so i, I wanted to be challenged by and and understand more around that side so that's one of the things that led me to business school and i also wanted to be closer to the content industry the entertainment industry and i thought you know coming out to la and having that door sort of start with business school would like i didn't really know what i was doing like i i think i had only been to la once before for like a day or two so it was all like a gamble like i'm making it sound like you know it was all like super well thought out but in the moment it was a little bit better than a gamble coming out and it worked out it seems like it definitely has so was la really was that the only place really you applied to UCLA or did you look other places i mean it was la i applied to one place in new york just i wanted to have the opportunity to chicken out <laughs> but it was basically like la and at that time was there not as much happening in film in New York and you just felt like LA really was where the business was I just wasn't connected into it and I really saw LA and maybe it was also I like to try things new like I I like to challenge myself and be uncomfortable so maybe that was part of it as well but for me at least then LA was a little bit more synonymous with a path I wanted to explore especially given like Hollywood. I thought of Hollywood never having been there or really understood it. I thought of it as scaled content storytelling. Like how can I get close to that apparatus and how can I be a part of that? So that really drove me to Los Angeles and to business school and and marrying sort of art with business and strategy and commerce and let's get things that might seem like it's more opposite ends of the pole and they don't have to be and that's actually been part of my experience when I did move out 
So then after graduating, finishing at business school, you ended up working in the business at a movie studio, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Tell me about that a little bit. What did you do? What were your first roles and and how did you find that? Sure. So my first role out of business school was working at MGM in the home entertainment area. And what was interesting about this is this is when home entertainment was or DVD specifically was like relatively new. I think it was in seven or eight million households going in the upward, like a real upward swing direction. And MGM had great content and was producing great content. So my role was, you know, essentially working for the president of the home entertainment division, helping to have all of the different areas of home entertainment come onto a single page and to align marketing with finance, with operations. And the title was Director of Strategic and Financial Planning. But essentially, I was kind of like, now looking back, I was sort of a chief of staff that helped to bring it all together. And it was a wonderful time. I worked for an awesome leader who ran the division and then had an opportunity to start a department within the division because DVD had been growing so much that there was an opportunity to actually go out and buy content that the studio didn't produce, but that the studio bought to put through our distribution pipeline. So is that the direct to DVD? Is that what that everything from direct to DVD to going to Cannes, Sundance and these film festivals. So I started the acquisitions area in the home entertainment group. And what was interesting is I'm making it sound like, you know, oh, I just like started. It wasn't like that. Like I remember I pitched to David Bishop that was the head of the group. Hey, you know what? We're growing these pipelines, opportunity to go out and buy content. Can I get some budget to go to Cannes? He was like, I think it's a good idea, but you don't really have that experience. So, you know, maybe work on the plan some more. So I worked on the plan, came back, got a second no. And probably by the third time, he just got tired of saying no. And he, to his credit, gave some trial dollars to go out there. You know, what was fascinating was I got to work with filmmakers, with artists, with creators who poured their soul into making incredible content, content that they took the risk on doing it. They dipped into their life savings. They didn't wait for a studio to say yes, they just did it. And then here they are in the South of France selling it. And I understood that there was a financial transaction, but the deeper thing was the emotional connection between someone who birthed something really, really intimate, and they're giving it to the system. And I represent the system. And realizing that it was more than just a a handoff or a baton pass, you really worked hard to build deep relationships and to build a trust with the folks whose hands it's going to go into for success and learned a lot of great lessons and and truck a lot of great partnerships. And that was also formative for what I do today. Like I love working with creators. That's what filmmakers were. We weren't using the term creators that we use a lot now, but I love working with creators because they put so much into it to touch other human beings to have a positive impact or some kind of sharing of an experience, a knowledge base, what have you with with others. And we have to respect that, support that, nurture that. And it doesn't always go perfectly. Like the strength of a system or setup is defined by when things go badly versus like when things are pretty and beautiful. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to build partnerships and operations and teams that work in that. But that was really formative for me. That's led to a lot of how I think about things today. It seems like at the core, it really is an artist and their art, like what they've created. And so the directors you were working with, filmmakers, I can totally understand and imagine how they're like, I've made this, this is my baby. And now MGM is going to take it and put it you know, into a DVD, which could have been actually amazing for them and had much more reach. But, but you never quite know exactly how those things are going to end up. And same with creators. I have such respect 
for people who create because it's a passion. It's not like a job is what it, it right. seems to me. You know, it's just like this is core to their identity. And it's so beautiful in terms of in life that you could have that. And you can then understand why they would want to be really careful about how their art is then portrayed or shared or released or distributed. Again, to technology, Absolutely. though, it's interesting because, you know, back then when you were running this acquisition team at MGM, your film wouldn't be seen unless it went into a movie theater or if it got into a DVD. Now there are so many more options for creators to go direct to audiences, like we've seen with social media, or now all the streamers, so everyone's mm -hmm. wanting to stream content. Mm -hmm. But it's still a content game on the business side. It's like, how much content do you have? What kinds of content are people interested? Do you have enough for everyone? Because everyone's different and likes different stuff. So it's continued to be an opportunity for you. Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity still. <laughs> You're so right on how back then, in order to get your stuff seen, you had to talk to or engage with acquisitions people or studio production people. And today, there's a lot more open doors. And I think that that is so important because I will say I worked at studios for over a decade, probably 12 or 13 years. And particularly when I worked in acquisitions, like, one of the challenges that I just had was when I would see something that I fell in love with, some great movie or show, and to know that like, hey, we're not the studio for it. Like, we can't honor it in the way that it deserves to be taken out because it's not our expertise, let's say. But then also to know that within Hollywood, there's like decision makers and their gates. And online, there are not gates. There's this like openness. So what you get online is often stories that you might have not seen through the traditional systems because of how the system is often set up. So though I came out to Los Angeles for this idea of like Hollywood in a hill and you couldn't even stream like one minute of a movie when I moved out because the technology wasn't there. It would have taken you an hour to stream like a minute. Then everything like flipped. I came out for Hollywood. It would actually be this combination of storytelling that's inclusive of Hollywood, technology, and a more democratic opportunity to be able to get stories out that, again, isn't a perfect system. But I think that the opportunity that's there and that we see on platforms like Pinterest are just really, really exciting and I think great for creators and producers and content storytellers. So that is a good segue, I think, to take us into your time in tech, which has now been over a decade in this space. So tell me about that transition to YouTube. And I know you did a few different roles across YouTube and Google. I don't know, maybe if there's one that you feel is kind of most relevant to now the work you're doing at Pinterest you want to talk about. Yeah, I worked in you know a few different areas over my time at YouTube, but I'll describe the last one before I moved to Pinterest. And I had a great opportunity to lead the area that we called responsibility at YouTube, and that focused on everything from family and kids. You know, I had the pleasure of being part of the team that launched the YouTube Kids app, and it was great because my youngest kid was in the zone of the app demo when, when we were rolling it out, when we were testing. And he actually says, he feels he's owed royalties because he was like the first or second human kid to ever use YouTube Kids when it was in testing. So I had opportunities like that and to work with educational content creators and health content creators making positive content. So that really was a fulfilling way to wrap my time at the company, you know, with a really great team and really great partners. And moving from YouTube, where I led responsibility, which was a part of YouTube, to moving to Pinterest, 
it's been so wonderful. You know, Pinterest is steeped in that spirit of positivity and inspiration that I lived in my corner of YouTube with responsibility. And it's what Pinterest is about. We have a platform where inspiration and positivity is foundational to how we design the experience, how pinners or, or users receive the experience, how creators and publishers share content with pinners. And Pinterest is called the positive corner of the internet for a reason. When I was at YouTube, I, I would look over and I would just marvel at the positive environment, the progressiveness of the policies like you know weight loss bans and other Stance on vaccination. I remember that was a big one. Yeah, exactly. And Pinterest has always been progressive and and pushing the envelope in the industry forward. And from outside looking in, it really compelled me. And I was so glad that it was a match between my interests and skill sets and what the company was looking for in this role, which is actually the first time there's been a chief content officer for Pinterest. And then when I got in and I started asking the questions like, well, how do we make it this inspiring and positive place? And it's both like profound and very simple. It is when you focus on and prioritize inspiration and positivity in your algorithms and in how you recommend content to users. Oftentimes, the way I think about it is there's this like fork in the road where the systems can choose a nourishing piece of content and typically nourishing, inspirational. You can tell it's that type of content when it's been saved by users, by pinners, at a higher rate when it's been repinned and repinned and repinned. That's users telling us, wow, I, I want to come back to this. This is meaningful. This is more powerful than just liking it. I'm saving it so it has a deeper way that it plays in my life. So when our systems are at that crossroads, does it raise up content or a video or an image that is more nourishing or inspirational or one that's a little bit more ephemeral, but maybe it'll get more clicks because it's a little clickbaity or it's a little more sensational. Our decision is we tune our systems to go to the former, which is more inspirational and nourishing. And that's one of the major reasons why we hear from creators and, and others that we feel safe on Pinterest, that it's a place where I go to and I feel inspired to do more and to build. But anyway, I just said you know, a lot of things to weave up to the present, but wanted to share a little bit there. That is fascinating about the product choices. And I think for folks who maybe are listening and haven't spent much time working in tech, but obviously most people have spent time on technology with technology, that idea of saving something to your board, really being a signal that you want to revisit it and that being so positive and just waiting that much more than you would wait just a thumbs up or a heart on other platforms because that right. can be so mindless. You can just be scrolling and click stuff and you know it's considered engagement, but it's not really engagement. But I love that differentiator that you all have created and then nurtured at Pinterest, which is like, if I'm taking time to save this and I'm going to put it in one of my boards and I want to go back to that board and look at it again for inspiration, like that means it's good content and it's probably positive right. content. I really do love that. And that's something I hadn't thought of before. That's really, really interesting. And time spent is not the same as time well spent. And I hope that there's more of an awakening across the industry around that. But I love that that is not something new to Pinterest. It's actually like the reason, the why, the how, the what of the platform. And it's why Pinterest is different from others that are out there. So on that topic, I think one thing that is interesting as we think about creators is the platforms they choose to use and then the time that they have to spend building audiences on those platforms. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this because it's something we do. We talk to a lot of makers, artists, crafters, 
creators. Sometimes they identify themselves in a different name, but that's kind of the broad range of names we use. Mm -hmm. And many of them have said, you know, I love making, I love creating, but I'm not great at social. I'm not great at my social media presence. And there's been a bit of a divide. And recently we've actually gone to a lot of craft markets. I spent time this fall going to a lot of craft markets with some other folks on the team, just meeting more makers. It's really wonderful to go to these markets and just talk to people that every day are making things with their hands and maybe every other weekend. There's some people almost every weekend are at a market selling. And they're like, I don't have time to then also really understand TikTok, Instagram, Pinterest. You, you know, how do I choose which one? And so I'm wondering if you hear from creators like how they kind of work that balance of like making the thing that they're showing off and then capturing the thing well, you know, assuming they don't have a team of producers and videographers and so, you know, assuming it's just yeah. them. And maybe are there some tools that you've developed at Pinterest that are helping make that even easier for creators? Because I've just heard anecdotally that sometimes it's almost two different skill sets. Yeah. You know, you make yeah. stuff or you can be really good at capturing it on social. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great question and a real issue. I think that the first piece of advice I would give, and I say this as someone who's like worked with platforms, but I actually say it more as someone who's like done some creating as well, is lowering the bar of what we think it might take to get out the door with something. I think that it's easy to get frozen in a sea of, oh, this person did this, this person did that, oh, look at the polish there. And that can be really tough to have in the context. And it's frozen me on things as well. It's like, ah, you know what, I, I need to round out that corner and then I'll do it. I think that just do it. And like people actually, pinners, users, viewers, they aren't looking for perfection. They're looking for I mean, we overuse the word authenticity, but they're they're looking for like a connection with another person who has struggled through some of the similar things that they're struggling through too. So sometimes actually that last bit of polish might polish off in a way the very thing that the pinners, the viewers, the users are looking for that keeps it real. So that would be one thing. Another thing I would say is, and this is, unique to Pinterest. We're often sort of painted with like the social media brush because there's similarities in how some things look or categories, but we, we actually don't see ourselves as social media. We see ourselves as really inspirational media, like on our platform, inspiration is the influence, is the new influence. That's what our platform is really steeped in. And with that, one reality about Pinterest, I think it's a great reality. And I, and I think it's why you often hear creators say that, wow, like I, I feel really comfortable here. I, I can be myself here, is that we focus on content with personality as much as we do personalities with content. Now, there are some places out there in the internet world where if you want to share your tuna casserole recipe, you better be a good dancer or joke teller. And on Pinterest, the craft is the centerpiece and the content is the centerpiece. Like it doesn't require it. You can be a sort of personality in quotes or could be a good comedian, but it isn't required. And I actually think that that goes to the core of like what creator is. Back in the film world, when we talked about creator, that could be a director. The director didn't have to be on camera and the director is a creator or the creator could be on camera. When did the creator world evolve to or get to the point where you better be the on-camera, the off-camera, the, the everything? You can be a composer as a creator as well on Pinterest. And that content with personality being really central, when a person is a creator, they're putting their soul, their sensibilities out there. It's already a vulnerable place. Why lengthen the vulnerability if they don't want it. We should celebrate the craft of what they do 
as well. So that's how I think about it. That's such an important differentiation. It seems really more about the actual result and the content and not necessarily the loudest voice who's singing to you or screaming to you about how cool the thing is they've made. It's just the thing that was made, which I love. I think that is something very unique to Pinterest and and glad that you all are fueling it. I would love to talk a bit about you also as an artist and creator. When we spoke one time, you showed me some of your art. Um, And I know also you've written children books. Like you can do it all. I mean, the fact you have three sons and your wife for decades, and I'm sure you have an amazing relationship and all these beautiful parts of your life. But tell me about your art and painting and writing and how you, one, how do you fit that in given your schedule? And also like kind of why is it important that you nurture that side of yourself? Sure. You know, for me, how do I fit in my schedule? Like, I don't is the answer. Like, I struggle. And any picture of all these things going great, like, I think the reality behind (laughs) the screen is, as with many of us, you know, we struggle with time, we struggle with challenges. Sometimes the reality might be on any given day, yes, I'm on a call, I'm doing this or that. And then afterwards I hang up and you know I look over, is everything still standing? We're in tough times, I think, just as a society. And therefore, I try to lean into creating and making and art as an expression, as I find that the more I put things on a page or a canvas, the more whole I can be. Like it's actually in some ways helped me be a better me and help me to resolve some of the conflicting themes and priorities in life. Somehow I find that art helps in creating and shaping things and ideas that are outside of me, but of me and the people who have had impacts on me, it somehow maybe psychically or even spiritually helps me to resolve it all and sink it all. And during the pandemic, like all sorts of things, like, you know, I got a dog and, and I also started taking guitar lessons. Like for years, years, years and years, I've been wanting to play guitar. I've bought two guitars in the past decade that remain unplayed. And this is a testament to, you know what, like, listen to the universe, listen to others. Like, every month, every year, every couple of weeks, I'm like, okay, I'm going to take that lesson. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I downloaded this app and that app. And I was in New York, actually at a family thing. And so my, my brother-in-law, he's like, have you started playing guitar yet? And I'm like, no. And he says, you know, this is the second year I've asked you the same question, or maybe even the third. You know, I'm taking, a, you know, lessons with this teacher and da-da-da-da. He says, I'm going to introduce you to him. I'm like, okay. We leave the event. I don't even think of it. I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to take any lessons. I'm just going to do an app or something. Anyhow, he introduced me over text. And then the guy's like, how about we start on Sunday and you see how it goes? And I simply forgot to say no, because I thought I was busy. And, and then I'm like, oh my goodness, this thing's coming up. And I've now been taking guitar for a year. And I'm actually, you know, I, I don't sound great, but I don't sound bad. And I let the universe have its way. I stopped getting in the way of it. And I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful because now it's like this other outlet that I've been yearning for and am now finally able to express it. That's wonderful to hear. It seems like consistency, forcing yourself to do it and then just being consistent about doing whatever the thing. And even from what you're saying, I feel like maybe you should also carve out a bit more time for (laughs) painting or writing because (laughs) it does fuel you like so many of us. And we hear that a lot At Michael, you know, people say that making is like really what is the most, you know, meditative, therapeutic thing that they do in their routine above exercise and faith and all these things that people do. But just to sit down and create something is so calming. We worked with a crochet artist who's a veteran who talks a lot about how crocheting and using his hands helps calm his PTSD and helps him work through really challenging memories and 
and anxiety that he deals wow. with. Wow. But even, you know, all of us, as you said, yeah, it's been a crazy past couple of years. And I think parenthood is challenging even in the best of times, but add pandemic and academic struggles and then anxiety with kids and technology and all these things. It's just a lot. So to find that time to just make quietly or create music, it's so important. I love that you've done yeah. that for yourself. Oh, thank you. And I a thousand percent agree with you. I think that making, creating, I think it's our purpose. Like I, I think making the world a better place, making and creating what's inside of us, whether it's artwork or a project, a 3D print, a design. I shared with you earlier that I made a run to Michael's a few weeks ago, and there's a project that I've had incubating in my head. I've got like markers and boards and compasses and all, all sorts of things. And I love that Michael's is such an enabler of that and an enabler of creating and making. And it's done that for me before, and it's about to do that for me with the project that I'm working on. It's past the incubation stage. I, I, I know exactly what it is. I just have to get it complete. But I love what you're doing there and what the company does and what it does for individuals who have a vision and a dream and how you all help that to become real and manifested. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we we really care a lot about our customers and the folks who we can inspire to make, help them get the supplies to make, and then hopefully celebrate in their their final projects, which we would love to do with you when you finish the installation. You have to send me a photo. We can put it I on will. our I'll put will. it on our Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if it's good first. And then. <laughs> well, I, I've actually, I feel like that is kind of the artist thing, right? The self doubt. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know. And it's like, yeah. your advice, just put it out there. Just, yeah. you know, don't, don't yeah. make it perfect. I'm already not following my advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> so, so tell me a bit too about just your family and how and we've talked about balancing and making time to create, but also, you know, you are a father to three kids and now you have a dog a wife, a very busy job. <laughs> how do you all carve out time as a family? You know, how do you find balance if you do between that work and and home? It's always a balance. It's a busy household. There's always something going on and the kids are getting older now. How old are they now? Cuz I think I remember you had all three when we were together at YouTube. That would have been right. 10 years ago, so they're all at least a decade older. They're all a decade older, 14, 18 and 20. Wow. So, it's a good handful and you know, it, it's funny how things evolve. Like I realize I'm talking to especially the older ones just a little bit more like matter of fact and you know, the other day it was actually my wife's and my anniversary, and we had a nice little dinner at home, and my oldest son and his girlfriend happened to be there, and we said, oh, come, and we, we had like a double date, and I was just like, this is different. <laughs> like, like what, where did I become this like guy who, who has like a grown-up son? So yeah, always, you know, trying to, to say strike the balance is not even the right terminology, like, like I center family. And then I feel, especially seeing how fast they grow up, like every ounce of time and presence and engagement that you can invest, it means a lot, even when they're teenagers and they don't want that ounce of time. You know, I feel like teenage years, you're just going to keep throwing stuff at the wall and it'll keep coming back at you and you'll get through it is what I'm told. <laughs> um, but uh, you're yeah. almost there. Yeah, yeah, getting there. <laughs> yeah, my kids are much younger, five and eight. Five and eight. Yeah. It feels much more of a physical exercise now. You know, they, they were sick last week, uh, both had the flu and both home all week and just, you know, holding one and holding the other. And then it's just like, that is so exhausting. And then you yeah. try to have a job and your relationship with your spouse. And it's just, yeah. it's yeah. a lot. So I totally yeah. hear you. But then people always say it goes so quick 
And, yeah. you know, after 12, 13, it gets, those years are challenged, like the teen years, but then you get them back around their twenties and you get to have a double date and right, things, right, things right. smooth out, yeah. <laughs> which I also remember like by 25, my parents were my favorite people in the world, probably my teen <laughs> years and then continue to be, but my teen years, I'm like, who are these folks who keep wanting to hang out? Right, 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 right. I so agree with you. Like in the early days or years, it's a physical exercise and a lot of it is, and over time, it becomes this like mental gymnastics thing. I remember when they were really little, being up late at night, waking up in the middle of the night, and I thought that went away. And then there've been times in the teen years where it's like, I'm staying up late at night, because I'm like, where are they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, and I, I don't, I don't know which staying up at night is like preferred, um, but you get more zen about it too, I think. Well, yeah, I laugh at people who are like, oh, we've got to sleep train the baby, and, and I'm like, you're not going to sleep for 18 years, so like, don't, you can try to do that, and maybe get some rest, you know, year one, but it's still like they need you, or you, you yeah. need to make sure they're okay. So, do you do anything on that side? Are you, are you meditating? Are you? kind of spiritual practice? What do you do to get more Zen about it? As you just said, yeah. I need, I need tips and probably some of our <laughs> customers with young kids need tips. <laughs> um, I do meditate. I practice mindfulness. I try to make time for it more consistently, probably a few times a week is what I do. And I do breathing. I was doing it this morning, actually like breathing meditation and I, I just find that it has a really big impact. Like it's one of those time spent versus time well spent. Like one minute of mindfulness practice so over punches its weight in time and meaningfulness. So I try to do that. You know, guitar, going back to guitar, like that's been super meditative to me. Like I'll intend on practicing some chords for like, three or five minutes and then like 40 minutes later <laughs> like you know time just like disappears so i find that to be really helpful and then going back to the core of how michael's connects pinterest connects creators and makers connect creating i find to be another connection like i, I try to journal as much as possible don't always, but those are things that have been really you know, helpful. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing those, yeah, those tips yeah. with us. So is there anything else you'd like to talk about or anything else? I think that's kind of like everything I wanted to discuss. Yeah, well, we, we, we covered so much surface area. You know, the only thing I, I would mention about Pinterest for folks who are interested, one is update the app. Like we're always encouraging people to go into the app store and make sure that they have the latest. Like, And I say that because... Pinterest is such a great place of inspiration and positivity for finding ideas to turning those ideas into reality. And it's also a great place to create on, going back to making and creating. In the past year, we've built tools that have allowed creators to really easily and seamlessly shape their content, upload their content, and really like design content. And this is like a newer thing to Pinterest that's really taken off because we know that makers don't only come to Pinterest to find an idea to make, but they come to share and shape other people's ideas also. And, and now we have more tools to, to be able to do that. So I would say that. And then the last thing I just think is like, Another really cool thing, we, we have this thing called Pinterest Predicts, and we're in that time of year where we talk about, okay, what's 2023 going to be? We're in 2023. What does the outlook look like? And what's the outlook been like looking in the past? And Pinterest Predicts is actually more than a trends view of like what's hot and what's trending. It's actually 
a view of what's going to trend in a few months because when people come to the platform and hit save, they're telling us that they want to do it later. So we have this like crystal ball into the future of what the major trends are, what the later is going to be. So there are trends like sci-fi fits where we're going to see, and I think we're starting to see this like already a little bit, but even more people decking out their outfits in a little bit more dystopian future setup, which I love, or historic homes where really marrying sort of the historic with the modern together. So there's all these trends that I think as makers, like your audience of makers, would be interested in seeing what the collective mind wants to do in the future. And it might help with ideas on what folks might make or even some of the tone around it. I love the end of year wrap ups and they've changed so much. I remember we worked on them at YouTube. It was YouTube Rewind. And then at Facebook, we had the year in review. At Instagram, we actually tried to skew it a bit more positively, like most loved posts. And at Michael's, we have tried to predict the year and trends ahead. We've also talked about like what were the biggest selling trends looking back. But this year we decided to kind of hold on it and didn't put out a list, but it would be really cool to partner with you all on something like that. Ooh. And maybe if you all are saying these are the trends and we'll, we could serve up the supplies for people I to go create those trends. I think that's super, We have to work on that together. Yeah. Well, Malik, thank you so much for being here today. This was awesome. Great to reconnect. I just love uh, hearing your you. story and spending time with you. Yeah, it's always great to be connected with you. And I appreciate being on the podcast. Such a great idea and I'm honored to be a guest. So thank you. huge thank you to Malik for joining us today on the show and for sharing his time and his perspective with us. It's just so amazing to hear how an early interest in art and computers can go on to define an entire career. And thank you, our listener, for joining us again today on the Michael's Craftivity Podcast. I hope that conversation inspired you to follow your own interests with a bit more passion. If you like today's show, share the creativity with someone else in your life. I'll catch you next time on the Michael's Craftivity Podcast.